everybody, and welcome to this edition of So Important. My guest today is Mr. Christopher McKittrick. He wrote a book called Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue. That is a line from the Rolling Stones classic Shattered from their 1978 album Some Girls. That is an album all about New York City. And the topic of Christopher's book is the Rolling Stones and their relationship to New York City and how it evolved throughout their entire career. People who know me know that I am a huge Rolling Stones fan. They helped define my life in a lot of ways. So as you can imagine, I am really excited about having this conversation. Let's get right to it. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I have a feeling that you and I have something in common that when we find a topic that interests us, we really like to delve deep into it. You're correct there. Absolutely. In fact, that's how this started. I'm a huge fan of the Rolling Stones and I'm a native New Yorker and I always wanted to know why do they keep referencing New York in their lyrics? Why have they always done publicity stunts in New York? And I just had to find out. And the more I dug into it, I realized there seems to be a book here. Uh, I got it about three or four days ago and I literally devoured the book. That's great to hear. I'm happy to hear that it's uh, that you found it, and because especially you're a big Stones fan, that you found it interesting. Absolutely. But uh, why don't we give you a chance to talk a little bit about the book and what it's about, and then we'll take it from there. This book I started several years ago when, um, as I said, I'm a native New Yorker, and I always found it interesting that the Rolling Stones, you know, they're from across the pond, yet their identity is so tied up into New York. There's a lot of songs, especially on the Some Girls album and some of the albums during that time period in the Stones history that reference New York City. There's also been so many concerts done by the Stones in the city, both as the group, the Rolling Stones, and as all of the solo bands that they have been involved in. Keith Richards and the Expensive Winos, Mick Jagger's solo groups, Ron Wood's various solo projects, Mick Taylor as well, and uh, Charlie Watts, of course, with his jazz groups that he does does so phenomenally, phenomenally well with. And uh, also, I always notice that Earlier in their career, starting in 1975, the Rolling Stones, when they wanted to announce a world tour, they would choose New York as the place to make the big publicity splash. Um, 75, they rolled down Fifth Avenue in a flatbed truck, performing brown sugar and throwing out flyers with tour dates on it. They've landed blimps in the Bronx. They've driven across the Brooklyn Bridge in a vintage Cadillac. There's so many amazing moments that the Stones have been a part of in New York City. And the more I researched it, the more I realized there's a story here and there's definitely something that I could work with in, that hasn't been covered before because there have been so many Rolling Stones books. I wanted to do something a little different and I think I got it. Well, you really did. And I should mention, I happened to have seen Charlie Watts at the Iridium and it was really a lot of fun. And Keith Richards showed up and he was in the audience and kind of cheered Charlie on from the sidelines. One of the fun parts of the book to write was during the 80s when Jagger, Richards, and Wood all lived, you know, whether part-time or full-time in New York City. Uh, Keith Richards is the only one that still lives more or less permanently in the vicinity of the city. He lives in Connecticut, and he's known to pop into uh, shows whenever Wood's in town or Watts is in town to just kind of give his support, which I think is, is a great thing to see for people he's been playing with for decades. Well, I was going to have this discussion chronologically, but you raised the 80s <laughs> and the late 70s and the 80s. And that seemed to be one of the real areas of concentration in terms of the thesis of your book, that there's this symbiotic relationship. Correct. The main focus, I would say that the primary focus of the book is the 
sort of mid to late seventies through the eighties, because that's when the stones were really, really involved in New York city. Uh, we mentioned the some girls album, which came out in 78. And that was an album that's all about New York city. You know, of course my title of the book can't give it away on seventh Avenue comes from the song shattered, but there are other songs on that album that reference New York city, even their cover of just my imagination which doesn't originally reference New York City in its lyr- in its lyrics. When Jagger sings it, he added a reference to New-, to New York. Miss You, of course, which was one of their biggest hits, was based on uh, the disco music going on in New York City at the time. And that's what's so wonderful about this time in Stone's history, late 70s into the early 80s, is this is the- a band expanding their sound. They're looking at what's going on in the music scene in New York City, disco, punk, And saying, you know, we're the Rolling Stones. We could do something with this. Um, And finding great ways to adapt their music for that sound. And they did that well into the beginning of the 80s, up until really the mid-80s when they had quite a a little bit of a hiatus, uh, which we can certainly talk about as well. It's an area that's always fascinated me. I, I always look at it from both Jagger and Richard's perspective, and Richard's is very open about it. But Jagger, he must have been looking at the band and saying, my drummer is strung out. Keith, you never know what's going on with him. Ronnie was going through all kinds of rehab and drug issues. How in the world could you actually plan to tour with these guys? The Stones didn't do a U.S. tour from 1981 to 1989. And that's a phenomenally long time for the Stones not to do a major tour in the United States. Um, even today, when when uh, they're certainly much older, they're still touring the U.S. every other year because that's what they love to do. And you're absolutely right. The mid-80s was a very difficult time in the Stones. Jagger was was doing his solo records. And as you said, from his perspective, rightfully so, the band, other band members were not in the greatest shape. And on top of that, there's also what seems to be resentment between Jagger and Richards from Richards being more or less mentally unavailable for much of the late 70s. This is when he was in the throes of his drug addiction. And it seems that after that period, when Richards got clean, or or I guess as clean as Keith Richards ever gets, he uh, was ready to take another step back, an active role in the band. And this was something that Jagger had been more or less carrying for the last couple of year, couple of albums. So I could see resentment being built there that said, wait a second, I kind of took control here because you were unavailable. And now that you're available, you want to step right in and work at it. These are also gentlemen that have worked together for decades. And just like any business relationship, artistic partnership, you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. I also think it's extraordinary that we've had the band together for almost 60 years at this point, considering some of these issues. But you're absolutely right. There were a lot of issues internal to the band at that time. Then again, it also produced some really good music. There's some great tracks from the early 80s, mid 80s that often get overlooked, um, especially by the Stones when they perform live, that I really think that uh, deserve a bit more recognition. I would put Harlem Shuffle and One Hit to the Body in that category for sure. It's interesting that uh, Stones are currently on tour now, and they uh, they allow fans to vote on one song that they add to the set list every concert. And they've had Harlem Shuffle on the vote a few times. It hasn't won yet, but I do think it's cool that they have that you know sort of in their back pocket, ready to take out. Um, so I'm hoping that it wins one of these days because it's it would be great to hear them perform that live. I did way back in 1989 at a show or two. Um, 
then they cut it from the list. But, you know, it was it, it. that's about as New York as you can get. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and that's another way to kind of look at the Dirty Work album and realize that a lot was going on internally. Because if you look at the writing credits on that album, there's very few Jagger Richards compositions. It's Jagger Richards Wood, Jagger Richards somebody else. And uh, covers and Harlem Shuffle being an example of that. Yeah. And the uh, video for One Hit to the Body, I think it was a little bit of a parody because it really showed them going after each other while they were playing, which I thought was kind of a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's great about the Stones is they don't shy away from publicity uh, and they don't shy away from from rumors if it can help their image. I mean, and this is going back to when the band started where they, you know, oh, uh, you know, we were presented, they were presented as sort of the dirty cousins of the Beatles. And they leaned right into that because that was kind of helped their reputation. And I'm sure Jagger and Richards were well aware of what was going on. I mean, they were feeding, um, more so Richards was feeding it in the press. So might as well take advantage of, of this, of this uh, sort of conflict and try to capitalize on it in a positive way as this is building so much negativity. If we look back a little bit, you mentioned at the beginning of their career when they came to New York, and there was a contrast with how they were received compared to the Beatles who were playing at Shea Stadium in New York. The Beatles showed up. They were already topping the charts. They were already popular. They came out and, you know, there was just the footage of them coming off the plane at John F. Kennedy Airport and screaming girls and people fainting uh, because they're there. And then they launched into their their famous show, uh, famous appearances on Ed Sullivan, which, as we know, have re- more or less changed rock and roll, at least uh at least how it was perceived before before that. I mean, it, it was just this extraordinary moment. In contrast, when the Rolling Stones arrived, their album had been out for, I believe, a, a, a week in the US. They hadn't had a hit single. Their tour was mas- mostly outside of big cities. Really, their tour didn't really get off the ground in the same sense as the Beatles, you know, being able to play these these hysterical audiences because the Stones were really an unknown commodity at that time. They appeared on Sullivan just like the Beatles did, but it's a very subdued Stones that are on Sullivan. It's not quite the Mick Jagger we know and love in terms of dance moves and moving about. It's not quite the wild band that they would become by the end of that decade. And really the only crowning moment of that first American tour was that it ended at Carnegie Hall with two concerts, um, Carnegie Hall in New York City. And this was really the only area that the Stones was kind of had a following, I think, because New York is such a big city. You got to be able to find a couple thousand people that at least heard of them. So um, what's famous about those Carnegie Hall shows, though, is it was more it was less of a concert and more of a riot. The Stones just they played two shows two because the, back in those days a show was really 20 minutes if you were lucky half an hour if you were really lucky the stones came out they played their first set the audience went nuts and they tried to clear the uh, carnegie hall the security tried to clear the auditorium for the next set the next performance and people wouldn't leave. They were hiding in the bathroom, hiding behind the snack count, just doing whatever they could to stay in to see more of the Stones. The end of the day, the Stones were banned from Carnegie Hall and all rock concerts were banned from Carnegie Hall for a year. Uh, that's how crazy this show was. And it was a little bit of the taste of what was going to come from the Rolling Stones and New York City. If you look at any of the old footage from those years, it's always the same. 
It's extraordinary because it's a level of enthusiasm when you watch old footage of the Beatles or the Stones in in in, in the mid sixties. There, you just don't see an audience respond to a crowd like that as much anymore. It's really amazing to watch. Well, it's almost another discussion about how rock and roll music has evolved, isn't it? Yes, yes. All right, let's jump ahead now to later career Rolling Stones. Sure. What you brought out wonderfully in your book was how uh, in the 90s, when they were w- with the Bridges to Babylon, and then particular a little bit later with the um, in the early 2000s with uh, the Bigger Bang, they had become a big conglomerate. They weren't. They were loca- They were living all over the world. Uh, they weren't really together except when they came together to do Stone stuff, but. On the Bigger Bang Tour, it seemed like they really came back together and put their focus back on New York in a lot of ways. You know, nowadays, the Stones, they play stadiums. That's what they do. They don't play as many shows as they as they used to when they go on tour. So when they go and play, they play stadiums for the most part. On the Bigger Bang Tour, they split three different size venues depending on the location. And in New York, they did three different size venues in the New York metro area. They played Giant Stadium. So they did the stadium show. They played Madison Square Garden, which has been such a big home for the Stones over the years. Um, so they did the arena show. And they also played the Roseland Ballroom, a venue that actually closed a few years ago, but very, very small venue, um, at least for Stone standards. And this was gave fans the opportunity to see three different versions of the, of a Stones concert. Sure, they still played some of the staples at every concert, but they mixed up the set list for the size of the room. Uh, and one of the most extraordinary things about the Roseland show is it's the only time the Stones ever played the uh, Between the Buttons classic She Smiled Sweetly live. It's the only time they ever did it. So it's sort of kind of this got this very special moment in Stones history. And of course, the Stones would sometimes come back and play different size venues in New York. Um, if you want to see variety in Stones shows, it's really New York was the place to be. A couple of years later, they played Beacon Theater for the two shows they shot for Martin Scorsese's documentary, Shine a Light. So there really is this drive of them to, to play smaller venues, or at least play at a smaller venue at least once when they're in the New York area. They do play it a little safe with the set lists. As I've mentioned, I've seen them a number of times. And the, you know when they do throw something in that's a surprise, like the recent show that I saw with my son where they played Mercy Mercy. It's just such a treat. There are people that want to hear the deep cuts. And then there's the people that are there because they want to hear Start Me Up, Brown Sugar, you know, Gimme Shelter, which are all classics. Don't get me wrong. We love them all. But, uh, you know, as, as you just mentioned, it's such a treat when they, they dig up something and Mercy Mercy, they hadn't played in something like 50, 52. Yeah, exactly. They haven't played since 69. So 50 years, uh, which is just an incredible treat for the audience. And. To be fair, there's there's really there's really a not a not a lot of bands that are of the classic rock era that that will, that are willing to do that. You know, you see a lot of bands and it's the same set list every night. So the fact that the Stones do vary it up and give the fan vote song and we'll dig something up that they haven't played in 20 years is really exciting. For example, on this tour, they've played uh, "Sad, Sad, Sad" a few times from the Steel Wheels album, and they haven't done that since maybe even the Steel Wheels tour. So that's a song they haven't done in 30 years um, that, you know, you would, if, if I had to put money on it before the set list came out, I would not have expected them to play that. No. And it is great that they do that. And just, just for the record, I, my expectations are exactly yeah. what you get. I mean, I, I don't expect them to go crazy varying the set list at a stadium, but I could see maybe two or three songs maybe being put in rotation a little bit and maybe giving them a chance to play a couple of the others. But 
you know, they seem to be doing pretty well without my advice. <laughs> yeah, and it is it is funny because they do, they you know Jagger um uh is the one who has the final say over the set list. Of course, he consults with the other members. Um, and he they do construct it. You know, pretty much a few hours before the show, he starts thinking about you know in addition to the, to the big hits, what do we want to play or what do we want to dig out. And uh, I think this is something I mentioned Martin Scorsese's Shine a Light uh, a few minutes ago. I think this is something that movie does beautifully because, you know, and, and it's it's a little bit of a, it seems like shtick, but it's also a great moment where Scorsese, you know, being a great director, wants to have this whole plan on how he's shooting the stones, but he can't get Jagger to give him the set list until like minutes before they go on stage. If you look at this whole career, what's amazing about it is that it spans almost 60 yeah. years now. And if you look at this whole thing and you think about the, the fundamental uh, points that you're bringing out in your book about New York and the Stones, how would you sum all of that up? The Stones in New York, despite coming from very different origins and being from different parts of the world, they have a lot a lot in common that reflects each other over the uh, over the later half of the 20th century. New York City, like the Stones, had a rough reputation. New York City also about the same time that Stone the Stones became this big corporate conglomerate brand with the Steel Wheels tour and the tours that followed. Uh, New York City itself went through its own renaissance in terms of rebranding itself. I, I always draw a comparison between the Rolling Stones and Times Square. My wife is actually originally from Pennsylvania, and I had to explain to her when I was younger, Times Square was not the place you wanted to be. It was dirty. It was scary. It was crime-ridden. Because when she first visited New York, Times Square had fully been converted into sort of the outdoor Disneyland mall that it is now. She almost couldn't fathom, fathom that. And I use that as a point of comparison with the Rolling Stones. You know, the Rolling Stones that recorded Some Girls in 1977, 78, when the album came out, were a very different band than the Rolling Stone that that are on the No Filter tour right now. In 1978, they still they felt they had to prove exactly, again. exactly. Uh, and you know, just like New York, the 1978 New York was very, very different uh, in terms of attitude, in terms of arts, in terms of culture, in terms of politics, economy. All these things that changed in New York changed right about the same time as the Rolling Stones. And it's, it's sort of interesting to look at how the timelines run, at, run together. And it, it almost seems like they were learning tricks from each other at the same time. I can't say for sure that happened, but I wanted to at least present that, that argument. This is one of the real highlights of the book is how well you describe the evolution of New York City and tie that to the evolution of the band itself. When I was writing it, uh, because I'm, I'm just also, as a native New Yorker, so fascinated by New York City history and how the city has changed even over my lifetime, I wanted to write a little bit more towards someone who maybe loves the Stones, but doesn't know a lot about New York City history, or someone who loves New York City history, but doesn't know a lot about the Stones. I wanted to find a good balance between the two to kind of you know give give something give something to everybody because I know I'm I'm going to have readers that aren't crazy Stones fans like I am and I'm going to have readers that aren't super interested in New York City as I am and don't realize all of the history so was, that was really what I wanted to go for and I'm happy to hear that you feel like I hit that I think you did absolutely um, let me end by asking you the question that I was going to start with which is let's talk about this cover what a picture here of these guys. Where are they? What's going on in this cover? Who are these youngsters that look like they're just looking for trouble? <laughs> so that was that photo is from Times Square. 
which uh, I'm, I'm happy because uh, I really wanted a New York picture on the cover. And I really wanted a picture from their early years. I, I really loved this picture because it has the band when they're young, hungry, kind of confused on, uh, you know, where their career is going, uh, but being excited about New York. In fact, that actually, uh, that act, that photo was actually taking on Charlie Watts's birthday, which I always find funny because he's the one you kind of least see in the picture. Picture because Charlie Watts, when he came to New York with the Stones the first times, he didn't really want to do anything except go to jazz clubs. Charlie Watts loved jazz music mm. growing up, and uh, Watts would go and find the nearest jazz club he could to hear some of these jazz greats that he only had heard on record. So I really loved this photo because it showed the band at a very early time in their career and New York at a time that has almost become romanticized since it's 50 some odd years ago. You know, it's Times Square before the giant neon billboards, but we still got the advertisements. Uh, I just love the photo. And as soon as I, as my publisher presented it, I said, this is it. I got to have this picture. They know, you know, how good they, they might be. And that really, it just comes across in that picture, at least to yeah, me. When I, I, look I agree. At it. I agree. I see, I see a lot of things in the photo and, and that's why I preferred it to uh, just a, a typical publicity shot or, you know, one done for like album artwork or whatever. You know, I saw a couple other shots that um, were closer to the Some Girls time period, but I really just love this one. And I thought this was the, the best fit. I'm really looking forward to getting this out there for people to hear. And I think you've written a great book. Again, I appreciate Thank you so the much. Time. Thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation. I, I love talking to Stones and I love hearing from people that have read the book. I've heard just such great things from people about how interesting they found it. Kind of like what you said that they weren't quite expecting the, the mix of New York and Stones history. History, but I'm happy that they're finding that they enjoy it. All right. Take talk care. to you soon. That was Christopher McKittrick, the author of Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue. I completely enjoyed that book. I highly recommend it. And what a great guy to talk with. Clearly, we had a lot to talk about, and I hope to talk to Christopher again at some time. One other thing about Christopher, he is a really interesting guy. So in the show notes, you will see links to his website. You will see links to Amazon where you can buy the book. But of course, you can get it at any bookseller that sells quality books. And this is one. So go out there and get this book and learn about the Stones in New York. I want to just reach out to some of the people who tuned in because they love the Stones. First of all, welcome. Second of all, think about subscribing to this podcast. Our goal on this podcast is to talk to all kinds of interesting people. So sometimes we may talk about the stones, but we talk about all kinds of other things. Take a look at all the different topics from all the different episodes. I think you'll see we have fun conversations. They're informative. Sometimes they're light. Sometimes we deal with heavier issues. But we always give the guest a chance to talk about something that is important to them. We're going to go out with a song that Christopher mentions in his book. It is from Jimmy Reed. It is called Going to New York. When the Stones were just youngins, this is one of the songs they played in their set. So thank you for joining me, and have a good one.
well, but I'm not. 